This is Fuse FM. Hundreds of people took to the streets of Manchester last Thursday calling for safer streets at the annual Reclaim the Night rally. Participants called on Greater Manchester Police to recognize misogyny as a hate crime, increase lighting infrastructure in student areas, and work with universities to introduce the Safe Zone app into residential areas. Fuse FM spoke to people in attendance, and this is what they said. Women need respect, whether women, men, everybody needs respect. It's their body, it's their choice. When they say no, it means no. Sexual violence should not be normalised in society, and the council is not doing enough to protect our women on the streets. The Reclaim the Night 2020 petition by the SU Women's Officer has garnered over 200 signatures. University staff have continued their strike this week. Negotiations between the UCU and the university are ongoing. There are currently set to be 14 days of strike action. The University of Manchester has updated its advice on the coronavirus outbreak. The university said it would reflect on advice from Public Health England. Finally, your favourite Manchester personality has been identified. Boombox Barry cycles up and down Oxford Road, blasting tunes from a speaker projecting from an IKEA bag. Catch his endearing interview on Manchester Evening News. He was quoted saying, I just love my music. Simple. That's all for now. You're in focus. This is Fuse FM. Hello, hi. And you're back here with us. It's Fuse in Focus, uh, your weekly student news panel discussion show, should we say. Does that make sense? Panel discussion show? I think that's what it is. Um, If anybody hasn't heard the show before, we're going to be taking a few stories um, from the student area, from the Manchester area, from the national area, uh, with another little bonus fun story at the end. And we're going to discuss them for about 10 minutes apiece each. Um, So joining me in the studio today, we have... Hi, I'm Rebecca. Uh, Hello, I'm Serafina. Hey, I'm Jess. Uh, And we're going to be discussing a few interesting stories, so no need to waste any time. Let's get right on into it. Serafina, would you care to introduce the first story for us? Yes, so uh, first of all, we're talking about prayer rooms on campus. So there's been a push from the Islamic Society um, in conjunction with other societies to try and get a dedicated prayer space in the library um, recently. So they aren't happy with the facilities that we have at present uh, just because some of the female students say they don't feel safe when they have to walk from the library to somewhere else to get to uh, a place where it, which is perfect for praying. Um, and it also there isn't like enough facilities for um, the separation of genders and uh, washing facilities. So they're kind of uh, pushing for something in the library which is a little bit more uh, suited to their needs. We have a quick clip from uh, Jack and Mustafa who um, are the main uh, people heading the, the committees and <laughs> societies who want to push for this um so if you want to play that now yeah my name's jack i'm here with the um interfaith prayer room campaign uh-huh. uh, we've come here today to uh deliver a letter to the director of the library chris pressler right and we're going to ask him uh, to create uh, a space that can be used as a prayer room within mm-hmm. the library okay. for students yeah is there one currently in the library no, there- Excuse me. No, there isn't. There isn't. Um, there's a few other sites around campus. Uh-huh. Uh, unsurprisingly, for students in particular, Muslim students who use it the most, mm-hmm. um, it is quite disruptive yeah. you know, throughout the day to constantly have to go and yeah. get, you know, mm-hmm. go to prayers. Um, currently, again, as Mustafa can tell you, um, there are some informal prayer spaces used. But right. It's just a bit undignified. It's a yeah. bit unfair, at least to confrontations with staff. Mm-hmm. We've identified a, like two or three areas which we think could work really well. Right. So we just like the chance to sit down mm-hmm. um, with a director 
and just um, basically say, look, these are the areas we'd like, these are the reasons yeah. uh, we, we're after them, yeah. um, and hope that he can get, um, or hope that we can have a prayer room yeah. installed in time for totally. Easter. Totally. When you say confrontation with staff, what's happened before? Um, well, myself are again so better qualified that, um, to comment like, on that. Praying, you can't pray that even though they've got permission to do so, but that's while you're praying and it's distracting. How far have you got? You've just delivered a letter. Have you had any conversations with the uni or is this like the first kind of port of call? Uh, so far, um, well, as you can see in your take oh, thank as well, you. we've got a um, our quite big coalition of uh, different faith groups which are supporting us. Right. This is our first official contact with them. We know that the SU is um, already having the conversation and mm -hmm. um, we just want to make sure that the views of service users are going to be taken into account with yeah. it as well. Yeah. But this is where I think the conversation officially opens. Yeah. Okay. In terms of broader support, um, if you are from a society which is interested in, in this issue, um, because it's not just, you know, we're looking at prayer, um, but also it can be a space for meditation, a bit okay. of mindfulness, yeah. we're very welcome to, you know, yeah. having more people yeah. involved that way. Mm -hmm. um, and any, you know, if they have statements of sympathy, they'd like to address to okay. us as well. Cool. Yeah, the spaces that we've looked at, I mean, one's a locked room, one's the bottom of a stairwell, right. and one is a room which is currently just being used to put storage. surplus... Yeah, storage. Mm -hmm. So these aren't spaces that are being, you know, that, that would be holding people. Like, yeah. And the other side of it as well is um, you Honestly, sort of look at it from a sort of bums on seats sort of perspective. It's yeah. like... Um, you know, it's a, Mustafa, how long did you say, you know, people are being disrupted out of their day to have to go? Essentially, if you're working in the library, you have to go all the way to the SU and then come back. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Or, or the McDougal Press Space, yeah, which is... Which is behind there, over there. Yeah. Um, is that also a quite a walk then? Yeah, it's about... Um, so it is about... 10 minute walk maybe mm -hmm. and then obviously when you get there you've got to pray so that'll take yeah. about 5 to 10 to 15 minutes yeah. and then of course like you then meet people so yeah. it ends up being about a 20-25 minute excursion yeah. at least um, and then if you factor that in 3-4 times while you might be working yeah. it yeah. being about an hour yeah. and yeah. Yeah. 2 hours and from that perspective it's like um, when you're saying the bums on seats kind of thing, mm -hmm. that's like an hour and a half worth of both people's time and like the library's resources time, which is yeah. being wasted. And when people are always getting like irritated about people leaving bags, yeah, people leaving bags, people oh, using right, computers. like saving spaces yeah. and yeah. stuff. It's basically just being more efficient with what the library's yeah. got. Yeah. And then if you think about it, if you're going that way to pray and all the food outlets and things for lunch are that way, it's just a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so. The library doesn't have a multi-faith prayer space. The SU does. You said the building behind the library does? Um, yeah, so the South Campus prayer hall. South Campus, right. It's McDougall's building. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the main prayer hall for the... Okay. Yeah, is, is there anywhere else? Uh, is there anywhere else? On campus. On campus, yeah. In Stockford building, there's a multi-faith prayer space. Mm -hmm. In the Simon building, there's a small kitchen that has been... You're allowed to pray in that. Um, but it's a small kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the Sackville Street building, there's a basement. Oh, you can praise that's the North Campus Prayer Hall. Basement. Um, business building. And business yeah. building, yeah. Yeah. There's a small room there as well. There's none in Alan Gilbert. No. 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 So I think generally people do it at the bottom of the stairwell there. Okay. As well. And same sort of issue. So, how long have you been doing this campaign? Is this something that you kind of realised recently, or it's been like in the. So I think Jack identified it in the focus group during part of the listening campaign. Okay. That they did with our some of our members yeah. in 
through September or September time? Uh, or yeah, about November. So, um, Citizen Society, we do the Misogynist Hate campaign. We did the Living okay. Wage campaign last yeah. year. Yeah. Um, this look, well, last semester we did a listening campaign with different societies to see what are the issues students have on campus, yeah. um, you know, and therefore what campaigns could we work on to like you know mm-hmm. develop on student needs, etc., and make the campus a better place. Yeah. And we had a really interesting chat with ISOC, and a whole bunch of things came out with that. And I think the one which seemed most winnable was the idea of doing a prayer room yeah. campaign. Yeah. Um, because it is such an obvious need which is just being neglected, and it was such an easy win. Like, well, we can put this together. Mm. Um, we, you know, and then, you know, we thought, what other societies do we have yeah. relationships with that we can yeah. put together on? Yeah. Um, and yeah, it sort of grew out of that okay. in, in that respect. So that would have started in like November when we first sat down. And yeah. then this semester from about January yeah. is um, pretty much the moment exams finished, is when yeah. we started like yeah. organizing it more seriously. Right, okay. And if they come back and say, so uh, we should absolutely say fantastic uh, questioning and reporting there from Fusion Focus's very own Megan. Um, what is everyone's immediate thoughts about and response to that? I mean, is this the kind of space that the university should already be providing? How do we feel? I was quite surprised, actually, that when I heard there wasn't a dedicated space so close because, you know, there are so many Muslim students here and just the fact that they have to walk so far out of their way to, to get to somewhere which is a necessity for them it was it was kind of shocking to me i'm not gonna lie like i think it's university of liverpool they have a dedicated express space and manchester is a very very prestigious university and we don't have one like what does that say about who we are as like mm. a city and a university uh, yeah i think just a major disappointment from the university on that front i'm personally not religious so i hadn't even thought of this issue until the story came out um and i'm really happy that Something has been done about it, and it goes to show that if students work together, um, they can achieve something, Um, especially because I think Manchester and the University of Manchester are very multicultural and represent a lot of faiths. Um, It's good to see that students will now have a a place to coexist and, and pray among different religions. I mean, I think we've all kind of touched on sort of the, the similar thing there, haven't we? Like, like the, the Muslim population within Manchester University is absolutely massive. There's so many people here that need prayer rooms. And I think the real shocking thing about that is it sounds like people are using like, you know, they're using a kitchen. People are using a, a, a basement. Was there a stairwell yes. as well? Like, why isn't, you know... The, the, the space already being sort of provided effectively like like is there any justification for there not already being this space i think they were saying something about um like proximity for washing facilities um and the fact that the space has to be two separate spaces for the separate genders um but i'm not sure you know how they're gonna kind of um remedy that if there is no space available but it does seem like they've got talks in place um, to sort of fix something so I'm assuming that you know maybe there is a space somewhere that has you know sinks nearby and you know some, a way of separating it mm-hmm. I'm not sure really what the issue is there um, obviously I'm not the most educated person on this issue but yeah I think it's especially important considering how much time these students lose going out of their way um, to find an ideal or suitable place to pray uh, especially around exam or deadline season uh, which often coincides with Ramadan. So we don't even, we take it for granted that we have all these hours in a day to study, to put aside our time or allocate it. And these students have to factor in their prayers as well. I think the 
that like people in the uh, Alan Gilbert building if they leave their stuff there you often see it on like Facebook like oh who's left their stuff here I want to work I want to study so they're being penalized for going and you know, following their faith and there's no they just can't control it and there's backlash from that and I think that's you can't change the opinion people need to be educated and why it's important and that's the university to do that because if they need to leave their stuff to go and then come back that should be available for them to do. Yeah, and I think not to um, constantly bag on the uni as we do sometimes do on this show, but I mean, it's not as if this is outside of the realm of possibility for yeah. for a problem that the university could solve and could fix. Like this feels like it could be quite easily solvable. Like like we heard in the clip, you know, there's already been a number of just storage spaces. It sounds like that have already been identified as being suitable for this. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure what else there is to say. It sounds like we're all in pretty unanimous agreement here. Like this, uh, like normally there's a bit of a back and forth and there's a bit of a debate, but um, I don't know. I, I just think we should just generally summarise. Just Manchester University, please listen to your student body. They've paid a lot of money to come here. And if people need prayer spaces for cultural and religious practices, surely you should be affording that to them. Does anyone disagree? I wanted someone to just, uh, just for a bit of just back and forth. Like, you know what? No, here's a hot counter take that you've not considered. Um, okay, so I think let's just move on to our next story. Um, Jess, would you care to introduce this one? Yeah. So we've seen a lot of this in the media recently, and it's the coronavirus, and it's been quite a far field problem. Maybe not like thinking we're going to catch it, and then it's been breaking news. We've got 19 cases two confirmed in Wales this morning. And the reason we're talking about it is we've got coronavirus pods uh, popping up all over Manchester, especially even on Oxford Road. Like I was walking this morning, there's like 20 posters on the side of the hospital railings, like where to go. And yeah, these pods are now made that if you've returned from one of the affected areas or you like have the symptoms, you need to go there, call 111. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they'll help you. They'll like check you for the virus. Um, I think some of the pictures that have come out about these pods is that it's in like near the A&E section, but on the outside and they've got like a little caravan thing and a portal loop <laughs> and some fences around it. And the person in this pod has the, other, you know, the proper suit on and then you're just kind of queuing outside. And there was a story from a dad whose wife came back from Italy with the symptoms and he was just stood in a queue for like an hour and a half outside this pod in a queue with all of the people that may think thought they had coronavirus. Mm. There was no protection for anybody. Like some of the people in the queue may not have had it, but they're all like joined together, no masks, no nothing, just, you know, stood waiting to be checked. So yeah, it's a bit unorganized to say yeah. it's a pressing issue at the moment. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, just on the walk to uni, you're seeing coronavirus signs, coronavirus pods, you know, what to do, where to go. And it's becoming a bit more real, I think, in the UK at the moment. And I think there's kind of a, there's certainly an NHS mantra, isn't there, of prepare for the worst and hope for the that's best. That's what they've been saying a lot. But, I mean, do, do uh, have you guys been taking the emergence of coronavirus pods? I mean, is that is that reassuring? Does, does that make you think, right, well, we've got it well in hand, should something happen? Or is that a worrying emergence of the reality of coronavirus in Manchester? I think everything just Jess has just said um, should make us worried, and I didn't I didn't want to succumb to mass hysteria. But if this is how the UK and how Manchester are preparing themselves for the pandemic, um, I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's completely <laughs> reasonable or preemptive. Um, yeah, and I have seen like online criticisms of how the government is 
responding to it. I mean, we all know the NHS is underfunded as it is. Mm. So it'll be difficult for them to take on a crisis like this. Interesting how like uh, main media outlets have used social media to kind of fear monger a bit about the coronavirus. Like only this morning, I think it was on the BBC and they've made like a whole little Instagram TV video on what to do on how to self-quarantine yourself. And it's this whole kind of, it's a bit of a cheesy video to say it's um, like a pandemic, you know, affecting everyone. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about how to stay in your bedroom or to, if you're ordering food, make sure you make them leave it on the doorstep. Don't open the door. Don't use toiletries. You know, it was very much kind of the basics on what to do to kind of prevent people maybe going to these pods and infecting others on the way. Like there was a story about someone getting in an Uber and going to get yeah, yeah, yeah looked yeah. at. And they just, yeah, that dri- driver obviously had no idea that they were going to be tested for coronavirus. And yeah, I think it's interesting how the media's making it a large thing when it is just 19 people out of, you know, millions and millions that live in the UK, but you can weigh it up both sides. Yeah, and I think with what's it, something like, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of 99.8% of cases are all in mainland China. And yeah, I, I, I think it's very interesting that like even today, you know, like the, the news that like two people in Wales have got it, is like we all got the push notification i assume for, for that oh my god it's in wales now <laughs> two people have got it i mean it's um it's a very interesting one to see like the, the the response to um i actually think the biggest problem in the uk isn't the outbreak itself but racial abuse that has been targeted yeah, yeah, yeah. at um people of asian descent uh because there have been exponential increases of uh racial attacks um, also against students at the University of Manchester. And I think it's just disgusting that people are stigmatizing it and racializing it. I mean, it's kind of, there's sort of like an age old, um, I don't know, sort of like racist assumption, isn't there? That, that people of sort of foreign ethnicities carry diseases. And it's very odd that, I don't know, the emergence of a disease in mainland China has panicked people to the point where they're like, oh my, let's assume that everyone who's of even the most remote Asian descent could potentially be a carrier. It's really weird that it's sprung up and it's become such a prevalent issue for people. Um, I mean, do people see the... Um, you used the word earlier, uh, the word earlier Rebecca, um, hysteria. Do people see that dying down? Is this just going to sort of fizzle out? Or are we in for a few more weeks of just panic and shock and this being on the front page of every paper? I think it's quite like swine flu. Um, yeah. I, with swine flu, I... I think I was a bit too young to sort of take it seriously. But um, from what I remember, there was a mass hysteria around that. And then it sort of just died out to nothing. I'm kind of hoping that's what's going to happen with coronavirus, to be honest. <laughs> bit of an optimistic approach. But I do feel like it's been massively um, over-exaggerated in the media. I don't mm. think it's... I mean, I mean, hopefully, fingers crossed, it's not going to be as uh, awful as people are making it out to be. Um, I just don't... Yeah, I feel like it's not as... I feel like we have the facilities to sort of keep it under control at least. We did with swine flu, so we could probably do it again. Did everyone, um, total aside, did everyone get the text from their GP? Yeah? Yeah? No? I've not got a text. What? You guys didn't get it, but you had it, Rebecca. Yeah, are you registered at Bodhi in Fallowfield? I'm registered at City Health in the centre. Okay, because I got it from Bodhi and it basically said that if you'd been travelling to, and then they listed uh, certain countries in Asia, and are displaying any of the symptoms or have been in direct contact with a coronavirus victim and are displaying symptoms, please do not come to the GP. Yeah. But then they provide they provide other resources in the text message. They tell you who to contact and how to properly get um, 
Yeah, diagnosed. It was a very like like cold message to receive. Yeah, I thought just, like, please to, don't come on a Tuesday morning for, yeah. for, for for just like a, if you've got coronavirus, stay at home and read this pamphlet. Please don't come see us. We don't want to see you. Um, yeah. Oh god, it's such a such a bizarre one. Um, I mean, with the amount of cases that there are in the UK. Um, like, is this going to increase exponentially? Like, like, I mean, if we could look at aside from the media response to it, like, like, do we do we think this actually poses a sincere threat, for lack of a better term, or is it all just overblown? I think it is alarming how the number of cases is increasing exponentially and how it's becoming harder to contain. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it comes down to how governments respond to it, how public health uh, organizations respond to it, and I do think it's being. Uh, blown up and as Jess said there's a lot of fear mongering in relation to it also like some uh, health professional was saying that it's only a like the majority of cases are quite minor like they're not life-threatening some of them you know they can treat them and pass Mm -hmm. them there's only like something if you get a certain or you're type of person that it can be you know it's the the scale that everyone's talking to it about so yeah I think that's where the media came in and has kind of scared us all because if you listen to the people that know what they're talking about actually it could the, the 19 isn't as much as yeah and as uh, no go on there's no, no. a very low percentage of people who actually um sort of you know pass away from the disease and i think it is mostly people who are at risk so older people and really young people um who are, would be at risk of getting the flu anyway and i think actual flu has a higher death rate just because there's more people who get it so just because there are the numbers are so small your chances of actually dying from it are very very slim mm. i don't think it is as bad as people are making it out to be okay but so, with percentages wise well I, I think if nothing else people listening can take away a bit of a reassuring message from all of this that it, it's fine i think we're all basically medically qualified let's say yeah, uh, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, we're authorities on this subject yep. we, we can rule definitively that there's nothing to worry about it's okay but if you are displaying symptoms do also get yourself checked <laughs> head down to one of the pods <laughs> Also, what was it? Are they actually caravans to go back They're to like, the pods? They look like little pods, but it was just the fact that they used just the portaloo thing. It just made me laugh, <laughs> like how and there's a picture of it just outside, and it's just this little white pod with someone in a hazmat suit sat in the desk. Like you go up to them and go, "Oh, I think I've got coronavirus," and then you get taken <laughs> into this pod, <laughs> and then are you quarantined? Can you leave? I don't know what happens. But no, yeah. I think I think that's it. You've got to hope they've got like some magazines or a book <laughs> in there. <laughs> just, I was like, knowing you're here now. Yeah, it was looked a bit strange. Um, so let's move on to our um, next story. Rebecca, would you care to tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so this is our third and last big story for today. Um, it's about uh, uni admissions potentially scrapping predicted grades. Um, I'm reading from the BBC now that the watchdog has set out three options for reform. Firstly, that universities would not make offers until pupils had received their A-level results, but applications could be made in advance as present. Um, applications would not, this is the second one, applications would not be made until students had their A-level results. Pupils could have visited universities and registered an interest, but would not make a final choice on applying until they knew their exam grades. And thirdly, keeping the current timetable broadly unchanged, but taking more account of disadvantages facing some pupils and reconsidering the use of personal statements uh, and having more transparency, transparency over required grades. So what do people think about the potential reforms? Having, I'm guessing all of us have gone through some kind of system. I think it's very difficult um, because none of the solutions are perfect. Um, because even if you did apply after you've got your grades, which would make it 
more sort of concrete and you'd have more reassurance you then would only have sort of a month to apply which would be quite stressful and would maybe need teachers to come in and work over the summer Um, and then again you're still affected by the fact that some people are going to get more help with those applications than others and I yeah I think it's probably um, difficult to pick one that's going to benefit students and schools and universities at the same time it's a a tricky one I think. Like predicted grades when you get them from your college or sixth form wherever it kind of makes you that's what you base your choice of university off and in like in my position it was you got your predicted grades but they predicted lower than they expected you to get so then when you got higher it made the sixth form look really good because actually did better than what they predicted Mm. and that kind of because my predicted grades got sent off to the universities um and it made me look like I wasn't going to get the grades they possibly wanted which really annoyed me because parents you know at the evenings when they were talking to them they're like oh no you will get these grades but we're just going to put these ones and I think that did affect how I felt about my application um, and I did really rely on the personal statement to kind of make sure they knew who I was, why I was doing extra. And I think to scrap a personal statement, I think you need to give interview processes as well because you need to get to know the person, not just the grades that a teacher predicts at the start of a year, rather than getting to know the person, how hard they've worked, and then at the end, the final results. And we've uh, just been past a story here uh, from two years ago that apparently says that uh, according to a report... Um, disadvantaged students from poorer areas are apparently given or sorry are more likely to receive lower predicted grades than their wealthier counterparts from more affluent areas and i mean if that in of itself doesn't highlight that there are, there's a you know an innate problem within the system of predicted grades i don't know what does i think the reforms that are being made the problem with them is that they're focusing on when uh when applications are sent in when the core of the problem is Um, applications being so dependent on grades to begin with because I don't think that should reflect um, someone's motivation or um, reason for being able to go to a good university. I think that's why the interviews and slash or the personal statements are so important because even if you sort of um, get an offer and then don't quite meet your grades but the university still like the passion that you've shown you still have a chance of getting a place and I think that's a lot more important than A-level grades because you know if something goes wrong on, on a, one of the days and you mess up one of your A-levels that doesn't negate the fact that you might have a passion for your subject mm-hmm. um, so I think showing um, through non-grade you know, showers that didn't make any sense but, um, <laughs> we knew what you meant <laughs> non, non-grade parts of the application are just as important and I think maybe even more we could kind of change it so those have more um sway in your application i think that would be a good way of going about it so has anyone else had jess you kind of touched on this earlier what was everyone else's experience with their predicted grades at a level one did everyone have a positive or a negative experience with them i my predicted grades were actually a lot higher but that's oh really yeah but that's the thing is like it was for personal reasons that's why i don't think all the pressure should be put on one semester or one round of exams, for example, because there might be mental health issues or personal things going on and you don't necessarily get mitigating circumstances for that. And I don't think, I mean, the universities go through, screen thousands of applications and they don't necessarily take that into account. Um, But also I went through a different system. I went to school in Brussels and it was a European school, so it was a European baccalaureate. So then I think it was weird that a lot of my friends and I were applying to the UK, going through UCAS, but with a different grade system mm. that then had to be converted into sort of the, you know, A-level system. And it's, yeah, what was it like 
finishing school in the UK? In my experience, weird. I mean, because I... Um, applied to do uh, my undergrad at Manchester initially and was rejected on the grounds of my uh, my predicted grades. So I didn't get to come here and I had to go and do a, an undergrad at Derby. But I'm here now, so <laughs> up yours at UCAS. <laughs> I win in the end. Um, but yeah, no, I, th- I think it's a weird one. And I think for me as well, it's and I- I'm sure that other students have had similar experiences. It, it is demoralising when you see a university flat out on the basis of you know just like what they reckon you're gonna get say you know what no we actually don't want you i mean you know how how does that put people in a good headspace to really like maximizing at the most out of their a-level experience surely that's just damaging and demoralizing for people you know? yeah i think especially because you're still at such a young impressionable age when you're when you're taking your a-levels yeah um and you're getting rejections or offers from universities and then to feel like all your worth or value academically is condensed into a few numbers or letters on a piece of paper just feels really, yeah, reductive. Mm-hmm. Especially because predicted grades are sort of released. I don't know about you guys, but for my school, it was sort of over the summer between year 12 and 13. And um, so we were told provisional ones before summer and then given our official ones after summer. Um, but that kind of leaves out the whole of year 13. So people might, you know, have maybe got their act together a bit more and started working really hard in year 13 and been able to achieve grades that they might not have been able to at the end of year 12 um so it's kind of unfair in that aspect because you might end up actually working really really well throughout year 13 um but having been held back by maybe a not as high work ethic in year 12 i know a lot of my friends certainly kind of stepped up their game in year 13 so it's 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 a tricky one in terms of timing as well I think I was the opposite, weirdly. I don't know why I was on my A game in the year before. Um, And then I guess I was just burnt out or had had it by (laughs) year 13. Um, So I think just on sort of that final point, um, I don't know. Has anyone got any final thoughts on predicted grades? Because my final thoughts are basically just let's not have them. I I think I'm for this. I'm for the scrapping of them. Is anyone anyone pro predicted grades here? I'm not sure where I stand. I I just don't think that that's um, the thing they should be focusing on in terms of university applications. Ooh, yeah. Okay, good point, good point. I think they, they, they could form a part of an application, but they should form a smaller part of one, yeah. definitely. That was positive is that you're motivated to do better. Like when I was told that I could get, I was like, well, I am going to get better than what you predicted me then. Like mm-hmm. it, that would be the only, I think, positive is that if you do want to get the higher grades, it's a bit of like a, oh, well, you could get higher or it, it makes you want to do better. Yeah, and I suppose if you already know where you want to go or already have predicted grades, you're more incentivized and you still get more support from the school to work towards those offers. Whereas if you're applying last minute, the month before, you're going to feel a lot more kind of alienated in your application. Yeah, because yeah. you won't have any foresight as to where you might be in a month. It's quite a small period of time to just sort of not know what you're doing for the next three years of your life. I think having that security is kind of nice. Okay, there's a lot to take away from that there. Um, Just moving on very quickly before we come to a close to our fun little um, bonus story. Has everyone seen the secret passageway that was found in Westminster? Yes. Yeah, so I absolutely love this. In case anyone listening hasn't seen this. So um, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, so so a, a former passageway that was used by the first prime minister in the 16th century and William Pitt the Younger um, had been sealed off 
for about 70 years and basically forgotten about and it's been uh, rediscovered and there's an amazing picture we mentioned before we started broadcasting of Lindsay Hoyle the speaker sort of stepping out of it and um, I, I don't know just sort of smirking quite gleefully to himself and I, th- I think it just raises the question of um, you know where are the other secret passageways that, that we don't know about like are there any in our houses Radio Radio 1 did something this morning and it was like mission, you know, um, something. And they made people call in if they had secret passages in their homes, um, which I thought was really funny. So people were calling in going, oh, yeah, in our house we bought, we found a secret passage behind a bookcase type thing. What, really? Yeah, and and there was another family that had made one for their daughter in like a room or something. And then one day they just showed her it like magically (laughs) and the house just opened up to a different uh, room. So I thought that was quite fun, like how it's kind of sparked people to like join in and say they've got secret passages in their houses. I like to believe that some MPs knew about the passage <laughs> and they just like to go hide out there yeah. in between sessions of Parliament. Did everyone see the graffiti that was in there as well? Yeah. And there was a wig left in there as well, I think. There was a wig left yeah. in there. I think the thing that really blew them away was they went in and there's a light switch and it still yeah. worked. So they just instinctively flicked the switch <laughs> and the light came on in a secret forgotten passageway. There's still electricity running to it, which amazing. is amazing. Um, it, it reminded me of, um, I remember there was a story my granddad told me once of when he was young and him and his brother climbed up into the loft um, of their house and they'd never been up there before. And there wasn't any sort of space between the houses because it was like a terraced house. So you could just go along the entire street. So they sort of crawled through and they found like the little like loft passageway to their neighbor's house and they opened it and there was like their neighbor's bathroom in there and they were like we found the secret room and then went down and then obviously got confronted by the neighbor like why are you in my bathroom what are you doing get out and they were like no this is our house this is our secret bathroom which is adorable um but anyway thank you uh very much everyone for coming on and uh discussing uh, all these stories i've had a really good time if you guys enjoyed yourselves Yeah, Yeah, I think there's a lot to take away there. Um, If anybody is interested in getting in touch with the show, um, you can find us on uh, Fuse in Focus on Instagram. And if you want to search on Facebook, we are on the uh, Fuse FM News Presenters group is the group. Massive thank you again to Megan for doing everything effortlessly behind the scenes and making this all just sail as smoothly as it possibly can. Um, Thank you very much for listening. And uh, if you've got a final thought, Rebecca, for the week. I have no thoughts to speak of. Zero <laughs> Just to put you on the spot. But thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And uh, we're going to have a song now. Here we go. Mm-hmm.